Hey everybody, Pastor Chris here. Thanks for listening to our Market Street Podcast. Wherever you're joining us from, we hope today's message helps you in your walk with Jesus. For more ways to connect, visit us at marketstreetchurch.org. What is the heart of God? And the heart of God, we want and should desire for that heart to be our heart. So what brings joy and thrill to the heart of God is what we want to bring joy and thrill to our hearts. What breaks God's heart is what should break our hearts. And so we want to be a people. We want to be a church that is all about what is it the heart, what's the heart of God? What is his heartbeat? And that is, should be our heartbeat as well. And so we've been looking at, we're looking at different, different foundational things, anchors, if you will, pillars, if you want to describe it that way. But we're looking at it as what is God's heart? And we looked at last week, if you were here watching with us online or in the room with us, that we were looking at the glory of God is the first and foremost heart of God. It's the glory of God. That's his heart for you and for me is to know and to experience and to feel and to live life with the best thing that life can offer, and that's God. God says, I'm the best, and I want you to have the best, and you can have a relationship with me, but it's not about you, it's about me. It's not about your glory, it's about his glory, and that's one of the heartbeats of God. Today, we're going to talk about another thing that is dear to the heart of God. It's the gospel, and it's called grace. The grace of God is the heart of God, and what the heart of God is should be what our heart is, and our heart should be to receive grace and to dispense grace, to get grace and to give grace. That ought to be our heart. Jesus was telling a story, and uh, Jesus, as he was telling the story, uh, told, told it like this. He says that God's kingdom is like an estate manager who went out early in the morning to hire workers for his vineyard. They agreed on a wage of a dollar a day and went to work. Later, about nine o'clock, the manager saw some other men hanging around the town square unemployed. He told them to go to the work in his vineyard and he would pay them a fair wage. And so they went. He did the same thing at noon and again at three o'clock. At five o'clock, he went back and found still others standing around. And he said, why are you standing around all day doing nothing? They said, because no one hired us. He told them to go to work in his vineyard. When the day's work was over, the owner of the vineyard instructed his foreman, call the workers in and pay them their wages. Start with the last hired and go on to the first. So those hired at five o'clock came up and were each given a dollar. When those who were hired first saw that, they assumed that they would get far more. But they got the same. Each of them, one dollar. Taking the dollar, the, they were anger, angry at the manager. They said, these workers put in only one easy hour, and you just made them equal to us, who slaved all day under the scorching sun. So he replied to the one speaking for the rest, friend, I haven't been unfair we agreed on a wage of a dollar, didn't we? So take it and go. I decided to give to the one who came last the same 
as you. And then he says this, can't I do what I want with my own money? And then he says, are you going to get stingy because I am generous? You see, Jesus is telling the story, and the story is about what is fair and what isn't fair, right? And when we think about fairness, we never think about how something may be unfair when it benefits us. Because oftentimes when something benefits us, we call it a blessing, right? But really, we should consider the fact that if we're getting something that somebody else isn't getting, that's still unfair, but we don't always think about it in those terms. So like in my household, if somebody gets the extra piece of pizza or the extra piece of cake, they don't cry out, this isn't fair! Because they gained, but others have lost. It's those who didn't get that extra piece of pizza. It's those who didn't get that extra piece of cake that say, this isn't fair. But what Jesus is saying to all of us is simply this. We don't, we don't need and we shouldn't be talking about what is fair and unfair. We should just be talking about grace. Because I don't want what is fair. I want grace. And so do you. You see, what is fair is, is that you and I deserve the punishment of God. What is fair is that you and I deserve not to get the blessings that this life, that God provides us in this life. That's what's not fair. What's not fair is, is that because of our sinfulness and because of our brokenness and because of our defiance of God, we actually don't get what we actually deserve, right? People in the room, right? People at home. We don't actually really want fair is what Jesus' point is. What we want and what we need is grace. That's what we need. The Apostle Paul said it this way. He talked about our life prior to a relationship with Jesus. He said this, And you were dead in your trespasses and in your sins. That word dead means, describes a corpse. It describes you're dead. You're, sin didn't make you do bad things. Sin didn't make you a bad person. What he's saying and what God is saying, that sin made you and I dead. That because of our trespasses and because of our sin, that's what sin does. Sin makes us dead. That's what it does. It, it, it's not that we were once, you know, uh, not okay with God or we didn't find God yet or, you know, me and God are not on all the, the best of terms right now. No, 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 no. Outside of relationship with Jesus, you and I were dead. Our spiritual life was dead. Our spirit inside of us is dead and there's something that God has to do in and through us. There's a work that God has to do that only God can do, that only God can do. So sin makes us dead. It doesn't make us on the wrong side of the things of God. It doesn't make us, you know, contrary to, uh, to God. It just makes us dead is what sin does. For the wages of sin, Paul would say in Romans, for the wages of sin is death. That's the wages of sin. And because of our sin and because of our trespass, against a holy God, it brought sin and death upon us, and sin makes us dead. And dead makes us disobedient. 
Dead makes us disobedient. Dead makes us to where we go against the grain of God. Dead makes us to where we go contrary to the purposes and the plan of God. Sin makes us move away from the heart of God. That's what sin does because sin makes us dead and dead makes us disobedient to God. Paul said it this way in verse 2. In which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. He says and goes on in verse 3. Among them, we too all formerly, formerly lived in the lust of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. So what he's saying is simply this. He's saying that because of our disobedience, because of our, our sin, that we are going to you know, deserve the wrath of God. That by nature we are children of, of wrath. That's what, what would be fair. He says before when you were dead you deserved the wrath of God because of his holiness, because he's a just God. That's what we deserved. But now inside of a relationship with Jesus, you are now brought back to life again, and you are no longer, the wrath was paid for by Jesus, but now I'm getting ahead of myself. But Paul is addressing three enemies, really the enemy and his weapons. The enemy and his weapons, he's describing, number one, the enemy of the devil, and he just wants us to be insubordinate, right? That's what the enemy wants to do. The devil just wants us to you know, go against the heart of God, go against the purposes of God, go against the plan of God. He wants us to believe that God is holding out on us. He wants us to believe that God isn't good. He wants us to believe that God isn't for us. And so therefore, he just wants us to be away from the will of God and insubordinate. That's what he wants to do. He's the, what, what Paul calls in Ephesians 2, the prince of the power of the air. He's working amongst, and he has his two weapons. Weapon number one, he, use, he has the world. The world. And he wants us to integrate. He wants us to, Paul says in Romans 12, he wants us to conform to the patterns of this world. Or in, in, in Paul was saying, listen, do not. Do not conform to this world. Don't conform. The ways of this world are people, we, we love our stuff. We, we value our possessions. We, we value our, our, our positions. We, we value our, our jobs and, 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 and our income and, and the things that we are able to go and to do and experience and to you know, go to these awesome places. Listen, nothing is wrong with any of those things, but we just should love them. We should enjoy the things that life has to offer, but to not have them closed-fisted and not being willing to you know, part ways with them, but instead the things that we have, our possessions and our positions and our stuff and our money, we should have it open-handed. Open-handed. Paul is saying, don't love this world. That's what the enemy wants you to do. He wants you to fall in love with this world so that our affections belong to something else, so that something else becomes our God except for God Almighty himself, so that something else gets the glory and God gets robbed of his glory. He's saying don't love the world. The world will entice, and in, 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 entice you to integrate into the world. Don't love the world. Don't get caught up in the things of this world. Just like we sang, 
this world is not our home. It's not our home. We are ambassadors here. Our citizenship is in heaven. That's where our citizenship is. This is not our home. Don't find your fulfillment and your purposes here in this life. You'll find it when you store up your treasures in heaven instead of storing up your treasures here on earth. In the room, are you with me? Don't love the world. Don't integrate into the world. That's one of his weapons. Another one of his weapons is the flesh. He says, don't fall for the desires of the flesh. Because it wants us to indulge. That's what the flesh wants to do. It's our sin nature. It's our old nature. It's our before we were new creations in Christ. It's our old nature. So the, the flesh, what the flesh says is, is indulge, 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 indulge. Yesterday, my uh, kids and I watched um, one of the favorite events, uh, live sporting events that we enjoy watching every 4th of July, and that is the Nathan's uh, Hot Dog Eating Contest. Oh, my goodness. Did you watch this? This is amazing. It's an amazing contest. So this year was a little bit different because of COVID. They were inside. They're normally outside. Uh, you know, it happens in Coney Island, you know, New York. And, and they were inside, and they were all socially distant and separated from each other. And, and, all, and had their masks unless they were eating their hot dogs. And so, boy, we watched the one of the most phenomenal athletes of our day, uh, Joey the Jaws Chestnut who broke his own hot dog eating record. He ate in 10 minutes, in 10 minutes, he ate 75 hot dogs in 10 minutes, breaking his record of, I think, 73 is what it was. And just amazing, amazing stuff to watch. Hot dog residue everywhere. And so out of curiosity over the last few years, I wanted to know, what does it take to be a hot dog eating champion? And it's amazing because it's not like Joey the Jaws Chestnut goes into the competition starving. It's not like he's going in going, oh my gosh, I haven't eaten in two days. I can really scarf down 75 hot dogs right now. No, as a matter of fact, they go in with a full, uh, you know, not a full stomach, but they go in through a process of allowing their stomach to expand. So they eat more and more and more and more and more over a long period of time so that their stomach expands. And so when it's time for them to eat the contest, they have enough room in their stomach to digest 75 hot dogs. Is this grossing anybody out? At least I didn't bring pictures this time. You're lucky I didn't bring pictures. So, but I'm telling you, that's the process. It's, it's about eating more and more and more and more and more so that you can consume more. And so every year, it's like he breaks his own record because he's just indulging more and more and more over the years. This is how the flesh works. It's not that we go starving. It's that the more that we feed into the flesh, the more we desire the things of the flesh. The more we indulge, the more powerful the flesh becomes and it forces us to become disobedient to the purposes and to the heart of God. 
It's like us with our favorite potato chips. Anybody have a favorite potato chip bag? Mine is Better Made Barbecue Potato Chips. Those are absolutely amazing, and I have to have extreme self-control not to finish the whole bag. Right? Because the more you eat, you're like, I, I can't. Once you get started, the more you indulge. It's like, okay, I, I, I know. And then before you know it, you're like, I just finished the bag. That's how the flesh works. The more we feed into it, the more we want of it. And it's contrary to the heart of God. And it's what the enemy wants to do in and through us. He wants us to indulge in ourselves he wants to indulge in something else and take our love and affection away from him so that that thing becomes our idol. That thing becomes our God. He says, Paul says, this is where we were. This is what dead things do. They're disobedient. And they fall into the trap that the world will satisfy. They fall into the trap that the flesh will give you what you need, and it's a lie. It will only leave us empty inside. Only leave us empty. Paul wrote it this way. He says, but may it never be that I would boast. He says, the only thing that I boast about, he says, except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. He said, the only thing that thrills the heart of God, the only thing that excites God is the fact that we can boast in the finished work of the cross. The only thing that thrills my heart is the cross of Jesus to which he was crucified and therefore I'm crucified to the world. I'm separate from the world. My place and my position and my purposes are not found in this world. They're found in a better place. And I boast only in the cross of Jesus. He said it this way earlier on in the letter to the church in Galatia. He says, I have been crucified with Christ. There it is again. I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. In the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. He says, my life is now no longer to what I desire and what I want and what I want to indulge in. No, no, no. My life is for the finished work of Jesus on the cross. And therefore, what Jesus did on the cross, he finished it all for me. And therefore, my life is crucified with him. I no longer live, but it's Christ who lives in me. It's Christ that is seen in and through me. It is not Chris you see. It is Jesus that you see in and through me. That's the purpose and that's the goal for every single one of us. It's not that we live. It's not about me. It's about what he's done for us. And Paul now says it this way. He says, this is where you were. You were dead. You were dead. And that deadness made you disobedient. And you had these things working against you. You had the world working against you. You had the flesh working against you. But God. Don't you love it when God butts in? But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love, which he loved us. This is the attribute of God. This is the nature of God that God is love and God is rich in mercy 
He's rich in mercy. We always want to put numbers on things, right? To determine whether we want to buy something, right? You always want to know how much something costs before you're willing to buy something. So when you go to the grocery store, you're walking down the aisle, you're picking up that bag of chips or that box of something, and you're looking at the price saying, is this worth it, all right? We all want a number. We all need a number. This week, I went to uh, Kohl's and was returning some things at Kohl's, and I was given a 25% off uh, receipt with my returns, and so I'm like, okay, uh, I need a few things. One of the things I needed, I grabbed. One of the things I wanted, I had to determine if I really wanted it based on how much it cost. So I looked at these shorts that I wanted, these Nike shorts, and I'm thinking, these are nice shorts. My wife just told me I need new shorts, and so I grabbed these shorts, but I looked at the price tag, and they were like $30 for shorts. So I'm thinking, well, I have 25% off of these, so I can get 25% off of these shorts. And so I take these shorts up to the counter, and I put my shorts, and I say, here's my 25% off. And she says, sir, this doesn't work for Nike. You can't buy you can't use this 25% for Nike. You can have Kohl's cash. I said, "I don't have Kohl's cash." They're like, "Well, I'm, she's like, I'm going to give you Kohl's cash after this purchase if you make this purchase." So I had to evaluate whether I wanted to buy these shorts. We always do that, right? We always have to determine whether we want to buy something based on what it costs. Jesus one day was telling a story of this king who had these servants, or this servant. And the servant, it says, according to Jesus' story, the servant owed the king what, Je- what Jesus said was 10,000 talents. Now, in your mind, you're going, 10,000 talents? Wow, that's a lot of money. It is. One talent is a w- one year's worth of wage. One talent is one year's worth of wage. This guy owed the king 10,000 thousand talents and if he didn't pay the king back he was going to be put to death and his family was going to be servants and slaves to the king until their end of their life that was how that worked so jesus was telling the story and jesus said the king because he was rich in mercy because he was kind because he was gracious the king decided that he was just going to forgive the whole debt. Lifetime worth of debt. Lifetimes worth of debt. The king was willing to forgive. And Jesus is telling us this picture, giving us this picture and telling us this story because that's how great of a debt that we have with God. But you know what grace does? Grace pays the debt. Grace pays the debt. And when Jesus is telling this story, he's saying the king just gave grace to his servant and said, you no longer, you no longer owe me 10,000 talents. That debt is paid for. When Jesus was crucified on the cross, he paid your sin debt and mine. He paid your sin debt in mine. Paul wrote it another place. He said this. He said that you and I were bought with a price. Jesus looked at us and said, I love them. 
I love them, and I'm rich in mercy, and I love them. And because of his great love, he demonstrated grace for you and for me, and he paid your debt. And Paul said, you and I were bought with a price. Therefore, he says, your life is not your own. Your life is his because he paid for it. And it wasn't free. It cost him his life. And that's why Paul says, I boast only in the cross. And I am crucified to the world. I am crucified to my flesh. And what I once lived in the flesh, I now live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. Grace paid your debt because God looked at you and he looked at me and he saw value in you and me. What grace. Grace breaks the curse. Grace breaks the curse. Paul says it in verse 5 in Ephesians 2. Even when we were dead in our transgressions, he made us alive together with Christ. For by grace you have been saved. He says, you know, you were dead. That was your, that was your problem. That was your spiritual problem. You were dead. And God needed to do only what God can do in and through you. And he needed to make you alive. And so when you came to the place where God came real for you and personal for you, and you accepted the fact that Jesus was crucified for you because he found great value in you, and he was crucified for you because he took the penalty of of death and sin and the wrath for you and me, we came to that realization. And when we did, when we received him by faith, he brought our dead spirit back to life again. He made us alive together with Christ. And that is by grace. And because of that, grace breaks the curse of death for you and for me. You know, it's interesting talking with people that had COVID, reading about people that had COVID. There's so many different symptoms that you can have. Some people have the symptoms of maybe just a fever. They had the, you know, the shortness of breath. Others didn't have those symptoms. They had different symptoms. You know, they had body aches or they had a sore throat. And other people didn't have symptoms at all. They were asymptomatic. They didn't, they didn't you know, experience any of, any of those different symptoms. You can talk to various people, but they all had the same thing in common, even though they had different symptoms and they had different stages that they, went up, they, they experienced it. But they all had one thing in common, and that is they had the virus. They had the virus, but yet they experienced different things. Jesus, when Jesus... He healed, or excuse me, Jesus did a miracle of, of, of resurrection three different occasions when he was uh, here. Jesus did, first he did the resurrection of Jairus' daughter. When G- he showed up to Jairus' daughter's house, he said, you know what, she's not dead, she's just asleep. And they kind of chuckled like, no, she's been dead for several hours, she doesn't have a pulse, she's no longer here with us, she's passed on. And so Jesus went into the room where she was laying on her bed, just passed on for just a few hours. Jesus resurrected her and brought her back to life again. 
And then he did a, a, performed a resurrection for a young man who was the widow's son, a son of a widow who lost her husband to, to the, thing, the curse of death, lost her husband, now has lost her son now. And in the middle of the funeral procession, in the middle as they're heading towards to bury her son, Jesus interrupts the funeral procession. Jesus, I mean, can you imagine that happening in this day? Like coming into a funeral home while the funeral is happening and, and somebody interrupting the funeral and they come up out of the, you know, of the box. That's what Jesus did. He stopped right in the tracks and grabbed a hold of the box that he was going to get buried in and he comes up back to life again. And then you have the third time with a guy by the name of Lazarus, who was the brother of Mary and Martha. And they asked Jesus to, come, Jesus to come because they knew their brother was sick and they knew that Jesus could heal him from that sickness before he lost his life. But Jesus didn't come when they wanted him to come. And eventually Jesus does show up. And by that time, he's been dead for about four days. And they're not happy with Jesus that he showed up late when he did show up. And so he says, take me to where you buried him. And he's been dead for four days. And then when they get there, he tells them, hey, you should just, op let's open up the, the tombstone. Let's open up the, the, the gravestone. And so they said, one of the sisters said, Jesus, I don't know if this is a good idea for you to do that. He's been dead for over four days and he's going to stink. That's, that's what they said. He's going to stink. He's in decay. He's a corpse in decay. You open it, it's going to smell terrible, and we don't want to do that. Jesus said, open up the gravestone. And when Jesus opened up the, the gravestone, he said, Lazarus, you know the story. Lazarus, come forth, right? Lazarus stands up. They tell his disciples, take off the grave clothes and let him go. Three different times. Yet three different stages. Three different stages. The little girl who was just dead for hours, but she was still dead. The young man who was dead for maybe a day or two, but he was still dead. The Lazarus who was dead for over four days, but he was still dead. It doesn't matter how far you are dead, you're still dead. The symptom of sin is death. And what all of us need, and what all of us needed, and hopefully you know this, what all of us needed was for us to be made back brought back to life. He made us alive together with Christ. And that's because of grace. What grace did is it paid your debt and mine. What grace did is it broke the curse of death in the grave. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, grave, where is your sting? Thanks be to Jesus who brought us victory. That's what the curse that's what grace has done to the curse. It broke it. It broke it. But we all need a resurrection. We all need to be brought back to life again. And only Jesus can do that. It doesn't matter how far dead you are or how little dead you are. We all need to be brought back to life again. You may be a corpse for days, or you may be only be a corpse for a few hours, but you're still dead, and you need life in Jesus, and it's only 
found in him. It's all because of grace. It's just grace. You know, it's interesting, this Lazarus story. This is a beautiful picture. I want you to see this picture. It's beautiful. So in John chapter 11, Lazarus is brought back to life again. And in John chapter 12, look what it says. Jesus, therefore, six days before the Passover, came to Bethany. This is where Lazarus and Mary Martha lived. Came to Bethany where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. Now look what it says, verse 2. So they made him a supper there, and Martha was serving, because that's what Martha does. But Lazarus was one of those reclining at the table with him. What a picture. What a picture. Prior to that, maybe a week prior to that, he was wrapped in grave clothes, dead. Dead. Jesus speaks the word into his life. He receives it. He's brought back to life again. And now he's in Bethany, reclining at a table with him. With him. You know what grace does? Grace opens up to us the heavenly places. Here's the picture. Here's the picture. He was dead. Jesus brought him to life again. And now he's reclining at a table with Jesus. But the good news is, you and I don't have to experience that in Bethany. You and I get to experience that in the heavenly places. What grace does is it opens up a doorway for us to know what it means to be forgiven and to set free and to have eternal life. And the heavenly places are opened up to us. That one day, we, because we were dead and he brought us back to life again, we're going to be resurrected into a new life, into a heavenly place. And we're going to be able to recline with him. Our faith will then become sight what we believe in and what we trust in and what we lean our life into now will eventually become a face that we stare at, that we adore, that we worship, and we see for the beauty that he is. Paul said it this way. And he raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Wow! That's amazing. He's raising us up. He's seating us with him. Now, there's a picture in Revelation of this. The picture in Revelation is of the fact that, that we get to be on a throne with him. You say, Pastor, what does that mean? I don't know, but it sounds amazing. It sounds, we get to sit, it says that we get to sit with him on his throne. Like we get a position. We get, we get to be seated with him in the heavenly places. Like he prepared a place for us. That where he is, you and I can be with him also. Grace did that. Grace opened up the heavenly places for us. To be raised up with him. And to be seated with him. In a place called heaven. At a place that he's prepared. For those who received him. And receive the gift of grace. Now I don't know about you. But that doesn't sound fair. Does it? 
I don't know about you, but because of my trespass and because of my sin, it just doesn't sound fair. But I'm so glad that we don't work off of fair. We work off of grace. Grace. Last thing. Grace shows the surpassing riches of his kindness. Grace shows the surpassing riches of his kindness. Paul said it this way. Verse 7. So that in the ages to come, he might show the surpassing riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. He goes on and says in verse 8, For by grace you have been saved through faith. And not of yourself, it is the gift of God. It isn't something that you earned. It isn't something that we deserve. It isn't something that we work for. It's a gift. It's received the gift of grace. It's where we're sa- how we're saved through faith in the free gift of grace that none of us deserve or earned or worked for. The work was finished on the cross. It was finished there. As a matter of fact, Jesus said that. When he was taking his last breath, he said, it is finished. The work is done. But it's us putting our faith in the finished work of Jesus. And that's grace. That's grace. It's a gift. It's a gift. He says, and not as a result of works. He tells us, Paul says, let me just lay it out for you clearly. It's not a result of works so that no one may boast. In other words, no one can say, I'm good enough. I'm good enough. I've earned it. I deserve it. No one can say that. No one. No one can boast of the fact that they've got it all together, that they're perfect enough to get to a holy God. Paul says, that's impossible. And so if you're going to boast, Paul would say, you boast in the cross. You don't boast into anything that you have done or achieved or accomplished in this life. You don't boast in your righteousness or your perfection or how well you have it together or how decent people think that you are. That's not where we boast in. We boast in the fact, hey, we were all in this position once. We were, whatever your story is, whatever your testimony is, it's all the same. You understand? It's all the same. You and I were dead, and he brought us to life again. I, don't, I, I always used to get intimidated by people that had these awesome testimonies, these testimonies of them being in prison, you know, for 30 years, and then God coming to them in the midst of their prison sentence and speaking, and, you know, you just hear these stories, and you're like, wow, that, that's just not me, you know, like, I was the son of a deacon's kid, and I went to church every Sunday, and, you know, and then I came to the realization that I needed a savior. Like, my testimony story is lame, but that's not how it works. The reality is, we were dead, and he brought us to life, and that work was done on the cross, and if I'm going to boast, I'm boasting only in the cross of Jesus. I only boast in that. He says, for the ages to come, go back to verse 7, will you, Carly? So that in the ages to come, he might show the surpassing riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. He said, this is, 
This is the picture, okay? Here's what he's saying. This is the picture. The picture is, you were dead, you need to be brought back to life again, and when you're brought back to life again, you should want to show in the ages to come, you want to show the surpassing riches of his grace. You want to show the world of the work of Jesus in your life, in and through you, that only he can do in and through you. That's the picture. It's to show it. It's to show the world that there is life found in him and in him, in him only. It's not found in the world. It's not found in the flesh. It's only found in him. It's only found in him. Paul said it this way. He says, let me break it down for you. Verse 10. For we are his workmanship. For we are his workmanship. That word workmanship is where we get the word, English word, poem from. It means it's, he's personally handcrafting us. We're personally handcrafting us in our walk with him. Meaning you and I are a continual work in progress. I got news for you. You're a continual work in progress. I'm a continual work in progress. But what he has begun in us, he will complete. He has begun a good work in you, and he will see that to completion. But if you're still living and breathing, if you're sitting here, no matter how young you are or how old you are, you're a work in progress. And God's working on you. God's working in you. So that God, listen, this is important, so that God can work through you. God's working in you so that God can work through you. So let God work in you. Let God work in you so that God can work through you. And he will because he tells us. He says we were created, his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand. So that we would walk in them. In other words, God has already prepared some things for us. He's already beforehand prepared us to walk into doing some good work for others. To show the surpassing kindness in his, of his grace. He, you were dead and now alive and he wants you to show that. He wants you to display that. The psalmist said it this way. The psalmist said this. You remember that you were just dust. You remember that you were just dust. That when God created Adam and Eve, what did he do? He created them from the dust of the ground. He created Adam from the dust of the ground. He says, you need to remember where you came from. And Paul would say it that way. Paul would say, you need to remember that you were dead. But Jesus brought you back to life again. The psalmist would say, you just need to remember that you were dust. You were dust. So last night, we're out watching some fireworks out on my brother's boat. And we're driving out to the, into the lake, going to watch some fireworks. There's a picture that my son took of some, the fire, there's the fireworks. And this right here is the moon. Did you see the moon last night? It was amazing. It was amazing. And we've been to the moon. You know what it is? 
This is a big ball of dirt. It's just a big ball of dirt. And it reminded me of that verse in the Psalms that said, we're just dust, we're just dirt, we're just dirt. But what happens is, is that, man, it was shining bright, wasn't it? It was shining bright out there. It was shining bright. It was just brighter than the fireworks. The fireworks were bright, but the moon was real bright. And it was lighting up the dark sky. And that happens because, you know this, that happens because of what? Because the sun, in all of its glory, the sun just shines on that big ball of dust. And so when it becomes dark, the sunshine that shines on that big ball of dust also shines bright. That's the picture. You were dead. He brought you to life again. He wants you to shine bright. And the only way you shine bright is by letting the beautiful radiance of his glory shine on you and me so that when the things of this world are dark, we're shining bright. When the things in our life become dark, we're still shining bright. And that only happens, that only happens when the sun named Jesus shines in our lives. This is the heart of God. The heart of God is the grace of God. And when you get grace, you give grace. I hope you get grace. I hope you realize and I realize that we're so glad that I don't get what's fair. I just get what's grace. Father, uh, that's us. That moon is a picture of us. Just nothing. Nothing dead, dormant corpse that you called to life, that you made alive. You brought us to life, and therefore, for in the ages to come, and the age in which we live in today, we just, we just shine. We just shine that, that light. We shine that grace. We shine that surpassing riches of your kindness to us. We didn't deserve it. We didn't earn it. And it certainly isn't fair. But I'm so glad that we don't get what's fair. I'm so glad we just get grace. Thank you. Thank you for your grace. And we are saved by grace through faith in the finished work on the cross. So that when we boast, we only boast in the work of Jesus on the cross. And we are crucified to the world and we are crucified to the flesh we thank you for that opportunity we thank you for that love the richness of your mercy in jesus name amen thanks for joining us hope to see you back next week